Thank you so much for listening to the Talking Classical podcast. I really hope that you enjoyed this episode. Don't forget that you can subscribe to the Talking Classical podcast and you'll receive a notification every time a new episode is released. You can also follow the Talking Classical podcast on Twitter, on the Talking Classical blog and on Facebook and YouTube. Many thanks for listening once again. I hope that you'll be able to join me for the next episode very soon. Hello everyone and welcome back to another episode of the Talking Classical podcast. Of course, as I'm sure you're all aware, we are living in unprecedented times at the moment. But that doesn't mean we have to stop enjoying lots of great music and culture. And this is also a great opportunity to be catching up on all the podcasts that I've been meaning to do. I am so excited to be able to present the interviews that I have got lined up for you over the next few months or so. And for this episode, I'm really pleased to be able to share this discussion that I had with acclaimed concert pianist and host of the award-winning series Living the Classical Life, Salt Bognar. I say discussion because Salt actually said in the recording that he doesn't like using the word interviews, um, which you'll hear a little bit more about later. And of course, this is a great time to be able to watch Living the Classical Life. So I would urge you all to go and watch these fantastic conversations. It's a fantastic series in which he talks to some of the world's leading artists and practitioners within the classical music industry. But before that, I'd like to tell you about a fantastic new platform called Creative Skills that is definitely going to be invaluable for many freelancers and creatives at this current time. So the London-based startup Tutti has created a new online marketplace for freelancers and creatives to share their skills. As I'm sure many of you are aware, Many thousands of creatives have lost their work owing to the coronavirus pandemic. As shown by polls done by the Creative Industries Federation, a third of the creative workforce comprises freelancers and over 50% of them have had 100% of their work cancelled during these times. But there are millions of people self-isolating around the world and of course have the time to learn a new skill from the comfort of their homes. That's where Creative Skills comes in. Creative Skills offers a one-stop shop for anyone looking to learn a new craft, continue their creative journey, support artists, find collaborators, or be inspired to take up something new. It's free to sign up for, and there are zero commission charges on bookings through the site. So if you're a creative looking to advertise your skills, why not create a free profile today? Or for anyone who is looking to learn a new skill, book a living room concert, or learn music during these times, you can also book through this website. For more information, please go to creative-skills.sharetribe.com and the Tutti website, which is tutti.space. You can also follow Tutti on social channels. But now I'm really pleased to share my recording that I did with Scholt Bognar last week. We talked about the making and the behind the scenes of living the classical life, as well as the research processes and the organisation that goes into making the videos happen. We also talk about ways in which Zolt talks to 
the guests on his show, how he makes them feel comfortable and at ease in a place to be able to open up about their experiences. With all this technology and everything that's happening now, I mean, I think it's a bit of a double-edged sword, isn't it? Well, absolutely. I've, I've been hearing people express that there's never been a better time to be sheltered in place because you have access to communication through video yeah, with yeah. anyone around the world who has a connection and to have great music available online or through YouTube. It's remarkable. And of course, I being the collector that I am, I have a whole library of recordings and movies and books. So in a way for me, this has really been uh, not forgetting what a terrible situation this is globally. It's also been an introvert's dream for me where I can just be inside, catch up with my life, catch up on work, my projects, in, in as much as I can control those things when I can't control the world situation. Yes, I guess that leads us quite nicely on to living the classical life and all your interviews, which now with all this free time that we have, everybody can binge watch. Do you think that you could tell us a little bit more about the interviews that you've done for Living the Classical Life, what the series is about and how you got involved with the series? Well, first of all, it's, it's been a great privilege to have had the feedback from people around the world in their position being in lockdown or quarantine to have a chance to sit down and listen, in some cases, binge watch yeah. Living the Classical Life, which uh, to me amazes me because it being an online format as, as with your wonderful series, wouldn't you agree that we don't always have a sense of the audiences that we're reaching? And well, I mean, you can see the stats on, you know, whatever platform you use, but you can't, um, I mean, you can't actually see the people, can you? So Exactly. And you can't necessarily quantify the impact on their lives. But we've, in fact, heard feedback from listeners who told us that this is one of the things getting them through this difficult period. And in one case, there was a woman who told us this was the thing getting her through. So we were <laughs> tremendously moved and touched by this and grateful that we have an opportunity to have a mission to help people, not just in their musical lives, but in, in hopefully a humanistic message. And to me, in a way, this is surprising given how the show began which was totally accidentally. I never had the idea, let's have a show and I'm the host. There was never such a proposition. I trained in Cleveland to be a pianist. I had a wonderful teacher who has now become very famous, Sergei Babayan, mm -hmm. whose students have included Daniel Trifonov, who was my upstairs neighbor in my old apartment building. And I really wanted first and foremost to be a performer, which I still in some capacity consider to be my main calling, although things have really become busy with the show and its mission. And I also manage a concert series on the east side of Cleveland. But really the start of the show was when I wasn't sure what would happen next after graduation. I did my undergrad and graduate degrees with, with Sergei and, and I thought, well, that's fantastic, but that doesn't necessarily signify the, the start of a career. How do I get there? Through what means? How do I ensure that I have a, a stable musical life? Do I go on and get a, a doctoral degree? 
so that I can teach in a in an institutional setting. Do I go and participate in lots of competitions? Well, for me, I always felt that competitions were not where I was really excelling. I didn't feel like I was the type of pianist who could do consistently well in them, and I didn't feel that artistically that was opening the door for my greatest creativity, for better or for worse. I, th I think in retrospect, if I could do it over, probably I would would have done more competitions, not to win them, but for the the opportunity to really mobilize a great amount of repertoire in a short amount of time and to perform it under pressure. I think there are some valuable things about competitions. But aside from that, I said, how does one really build a sustainable performing life? And so I started asking these questions of colleagues and friends I admired who were just a few steps ahead of me in terms of this pathway. And I started getting some feedback, participating in this myself, whether it be participating in certain festivals, meeting certain people, learning certain types of repertoire and setting up certain types of concerts. But I realized I was also so interested in their, not just their musical lives, but their lives in general on a, on a human level. And I couldn't stop hearing about how they overcame their own self-doubts, any adversity that came up, any of their challenges. I, I couldn't stop hearing these stories. And I, I have to say that I also grew up as an interview listening junkie. On, on National Public Radio here in the United States, there are fantastic programs. Uh, Terry Gross on Fresh Air. There was the Charlie Rose show back when that was going. There was Inside the Actors Studio. This show really was such an inspiration because I didn't really think of these as being strictly interviews. I really thought these were conversations about life. So he would bring on famous actors and speak to them about their life, their work, and especially their process. And so all of this taken together, I felt there was so much to relate to in terms of my craft as a musician, how I'm trying to find an artistic voice. And also just on a human level, I remember there were certain stories told by his guests that actually moved me to tears. I imagine that, that they were talking about the challenges that they faced. And it's the same thing what I see on Living the Classical Life. Most of the guests, if not all, really go through the same types of challenges in reaching the path towards their, their goals. There isn't a single guest that we have had who hasn't experienced some sort of doubt or stage fright, for example. So in the early days of the show, I basically just asked my friends, so how did it really accidentally start? Well, okay, so about 10 years ago, for me as a performer, I had some friends ask me if I had a website, and I said, no, I don't. I said, well, you should probably have one so that anyone wanting to follow your career as a performer can know a little bit about you and where you're performing. I said, okay, that sounds like a good idea. They said, well, why don't we also film a little three to five minute video about you so that you can talk on camera, introduce yourself, and maybe play a little bit. And so I said, okay, okay, that's fine. There are some conservatory faculty pages that do this sort of thing, and I've seen this done elsewhere as well. So a little film production company based out of New York City came here to Cleveland and to Oberlin and started to film me. 
And I remember in those days, I was spectacularly awkward on camera. I didn't know what to do. I wasn't sure what I was supposed to show about myself in order to make some, something interesting. I felt like the whole proposition was really forced and, and I hated it. So what happened was I started bringing friends on camera and just interacting with them to try to show some of my social life and the way I interact on, uh, in the area of discussing musical subjects. But it started to look like to the director that I was asking them questions about their lives and their musical pathways and their challenges. So at some point, he said, Jolt, why don't you have a look at this? I've, I've recut some of the material. Perhaps it's a show. And I said, well, that, that, I love that idea much more because then I don't really have to be in the spotlight per se. I can have the conversations that I want to have. I don't have to try to artificially highlight anything about myself and I can just ask questions and, and have fun with it. So that's, that's really where it started. So our first four episodes were released as such before we knew we had the concept. Mm -hmm. And after that, things started being filmed specifically for the purpose of the show. And in those early days, we had... Daniel Trifonoff on. It was easy enough for me to ask him because he was my, my neighbor <laughs> yeah, yeah. and my friend and studio mate. And so he agreed to be on. And at the same time, we had Stephen Huff on and he had been a longtime friend of mine, introduced oh, wow. to me by my teacher. Amazing. And Stephen, of course, is, is as lovely as possible and made my life as, as the host of the show much easier because he, does, he really doesn't need any prompting. He he can speak in complete, organized, cross-referenced paragraphs in a way that I could only dream of doing myself. <laughs> and, and the show is already done. I only had to gently guide certain subjects. But it was wonderful. At the same time, Yu Jia Wang saw Daniel's episode and agreed to be on specifically because she liked his episode. And so these three pianists taken together really established an early baseline for the show. And and helped us to get further guests. But the problem there, well, not a problem in my view as a pianist, but the, the show initially was seen as a, a piano show mm -hmm. and uh, was very piano heavy. Mm -hmm. So in, in subsequent years, we've really tried to balance telling the stories of not just instrumentalists, but singers and conductors. Mm -hmm. And outside of the world of performers, we also have journalists, recording producers, and presenters, because these are also crucial perspectives in keeping the musical world alive. Yeah. Recently, we also filmed our first non-classical guest. This was a Broadway singer, Melissa Errico. Oh. And eventually, my hope is to be able to branch out with the show to include all of the classical arts, if you will, mm -hmm. whether it be writers, actors, dancers, yeah. you name it. All of that interests me. Mm. And, I, and I think that there is room for the curiosity of the audiences to really see the, the connections between the arts. If, if we really, this is probably something that you are, are curious about yourself in terms of keeping classical music alive, if we want to call it that. Mm. Are we really in our own little bubble, our own little niche, where we only limit ourselves to our existing audiences, or do we try to include a wider audience 
of people who have perhaps overlapping interests, common interests? I really think the answer is yes. That, that's really, really interesting. Um, I was going to ask, actually, um, I, I mean, you touched on this um, a little bit, but um, how you actually go about recruiting the guests for the show. I mean, you said that some of them were people that you know, but um, do you contact agents or do agents or publicists, do they approach you and do they um, suggest people? It's, it's always a, a balancing act because in the beginning, most of my work was just writing to potential guests, asking them to be on. Mm -hmm. Before we had much to show for the, the episodes, it was pretty challenging. Yeah. And I, in the early days of the show, I was the one to choose the guests. Mm -hmm. And so I would just follow whoever had an interesting story to tell, whoever yeah. I admired growing up. Yeah. <laughs> And that was truly a lot of work. And, and so, many, so many times the answer was no, which is fine. <laughs> but at the same time, I had to find guests. So I kept trying, kept trying. And I would write really lengthy letters of introduction to try to qualify what we were trying to do. Uh, there came a turning point when Joshua Bell's uh, publicity team contacted us uh, that was the first time that uh, a guest reached out to us wanting to be on the show. And so after that, it started to shift in the, in the direction that people wanted to be on the show. But f for a long time after that, it was still a lot of the people we contacted still would say no. Today, I have a team of writers. And, and for the most part, they are doing the research on the guests and they are contacting the guests. So I don't single-handedly get to decide that anymore. And, and now there are, there are a lot of people who do want to be on the show because of its growing visibility. Yeah. And if I had unlimited budget, I would tell all of their stories because I, re I really think that the point of the show is there's no such thing as an ordinary life. I think everyone has a story to tell from which others can learn an important message. And I think we can inspire each other and... Unfortunately, I don't have unlimited funding, so I, the team has to decide. It's, it's, it's enormously expensive to produce one episode with this film series. We have studio cameras, we have a, a lighting crew, and we have a, a sound crew, and then there's the production side and post-production. So we really have to choose to find a nice balance of guests and, and content. You said that you have a team of writers I was going to ask you how you go about preparing the questions I was going to ask if you know you come up with a, a list of questions or yes this has always been the question for me how to how to lead the show as the host because it's it's somewhat evolving as it goes in the beginning I would do all the research mm -hmm. I would I would actually come up with a list of questions I would put them in order <laughs> to try to come up with a flow of conversation, then I would memorize the questions yeah. and then try to recite those in the moment of the, <laughs> of the filming. But I've actually come to realize that great preparation doesn't necessarily translate to a better feature. Good listening factors in and really just, just enjoying the conversation, just showing curiosity about the guest. I really can think of 
instances where my preparation was heavy and I really felt on top of my material. But I thought that the end results seemed rather stiff and formal and, and just not, not my ideal vision. So I sometimes come up with general subject headings of what I think might be interesting to ask of a particular guest. And I will still do a lot of research to, to know their background, but I think it's way better to just have an organic conversation to see what comes up. And that way it doesn't really feel like an interrogation, which is why I resist the word interview so much. <laughs> I'm, I'm so allergic to the word interview. In fact, I almost get upset when people say, oh, you're a great interviewer. I say, oh, well, uh, okay, thank you, thank you, thank you. But I really think of these as conversations where it's back and forth. And I think the fact that I'm a musician also gives a different perspective on a musician to musician conversation, say about performance. Mm, absolutely. And I was actually going to say that you just have this wonderful way of just making everyone you interview feel really relaxed and you just provide this really safe space for them to, like we were saying earlier, open up about their experiences and also without also being too interrogative as well. Um, so, I mean, where do you find that balance then? Well, thank you very much. I, I do think that one of my number one talents is to try to make people feel comfortable and I think succeed in most cases. There, there was one instance where I found it challenging with one of, one of our guests, but <laughs> I do think that a certain demeanor, almost as a performer, as the host of a show, there are certain ways that you can create that safe space mm -hmm. and establish a trust and a direct connection if you speak from the heart and really give your own examples as a lead-in to try to... For example, I, I usually ask long enough questions and reiterate them during that question in a couple of different ways that I give them enough time to consider their, an, their answer yeah. before jumping in. Mm -hmm. I really try to probe an in-depth answer <laughs> and I really try to sense how far they will go. And so I will pose a concept in such a way that they can take it as far as they wish. And if I feel like they want to probe, then I will continue to go in that direction. Yeah. And, and that is somewhat a conversational skill. It's, it's almost an act of performing. Yeah. And people often ask, wow, how did you get them to say so much? Those, those were really rather um, up close and personal looks in, 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 into their inner world. And I say, well, yes, I, I do try to make it, them feel safe. And, and one thing that I do at the beginning of the filming is just to tell them, look, this is not a live conversation. So just feel free to talk and later we can just, we can edit. So that really puts them at ease. They can just talk. I guess that there is that fine line, isn't there, that some artists, they're willing to open up and then there are others who are perhaps slightly more reserved. And we have found that the younger the guest, the more concerned they seem to be about how they present themselves. They might have, in some cases, not done a feature like that before and they want to make sure that they're presenting in a particular way their best selves and that's a lot of pressure yeah. so they they will sometimes be really nervous and I think I'm 
I'm, I'm good at calming them down. Yeah. Um, but it, it really, I mean, th there were two instances where I, I brought a guest up to the limit and found the limit in terms of how much they wanted to talk about. But I would also say that you can go back and have them basically talk about the same thing by framing it in a different way. Yeah. It is possible to speak about those same concepts. So uh, there are also other techniques you can do as a, as a listener. If you've asked a difficult question and they don't seem to want to answer it, you can also remain silent and just, just uh, continue to look at them intently. And that's, that's one of the advantages of speaking face-to-face -face with them. You can just hold them in, there in that zone and then they might be compelled to say a little bit more, a little bit further. Yeah. yeah. I think that's something really interesting that you said because I think often a lot of interviewers are quite scared of silence and feel that they just have to talk all the time often the silence gives them an opportunity to to think well i think the understanding is basically that everyone has the story to tell and for the most part they want to share it yeah the question is how and through through what context so i i really think that it's taken me quite a bit of time to understand some of these parameters and i feel like i'm still figuring it out and still learning with with each occasion yeah yeah i mean you've had some amazing people on the series um do you get nervous or starstruck meeting some of these people <laughs> yes absolutely i would say that i still get nervous for each feature you, you can't imagine it feels like for me it feels like the same amount of tension and, and, and wish to do well as I feel when I'm backstage. Really? Before a performance as a pianist. Yes, absolutely. And you would think, we've filmed almost 100 of these features and you would think that by now <laughs> it would be a little bit easier. And maybe I do understand a, a little bit more what to expect, but I still feel the same butterflies and, I, and, and, and that's, that's in a way part of the excitement. And as for being starstruck, well, in a way, yes, because I'm, in some cases, meeting for the first time artists I grew up admiring. For example, I filmed Vladimir Ashkenazi in, in my living room here in Cleveland. So, oh, wow. <laughs> by, by circumstances, I mean, well, it was amazing. I mean, I collected his recordings from the time I was a child. And, yeah. And here he was in my living room in, in Cleveland, of all places. So norm normally, we're, we're filming in, in New York. But the circumstances came together that we were able to do that. We also filmed yeah. with uh, Emmanuel Axe in my living room and Jeanette Sorrell and, and, yeah. and Brian Thornton. So we've had a, a great range of musicians. But uh, imagine Vladimir Ashkenazi, a living legend, walking through your door. <laughs> and there you are, wishing to make him feel comfortable. And, and you don't know you know, how he regards you as this younger supposed performer and, and, and what's this show about? In, in a lot of cases, the, the guests don't have time to look at whatever they've agreed to. Yeah. And, and that's fine, but you do try to establish that trust in a short amount of time. And, and, and there he was with his, his wife and, and, and you really want to be aware of their time and energy. He, he had a performance with the Cleveland Orchestra that evening, so I didn't also want to tire him out. 
So there are a lot of considerations and, and, and it's a lot to juggle, but that's, that's part of the, the excitement of putting on a production. Yeah. Who have been some of your favorite interviews that you've done so far? I mean, you mentioned the Vladimir Ashkenazi interview. I'll definitely be um, watching that interview later. Well, there are so many that are favorites and I, I would say almost each one is my favorite. But I would say I'm, I'm really drawn to the episodes in which they're talking about human interest subjects. Yeah. So for example, the operatic star Deborah Voigt was speaking almost the entire show about her personal life challenges that she yeah. faced, whether it be addictions, alcoholism, yeah. her struggle with weight and abusive relationships and how she put these into a context and related that to her life as a performer I found to be exceptionally moving and, and, and our audiences and, and viewers and listeners are also connecting particularly closely with these types of episodes. The, the younger opera star Nadine Sierra was particularly delightful because she seemed to find, and she's about my age, and she, which I still consider to be rather young, I'll, I'll add, <laughs> I hope, <laughs> is that at a similar age to mine, she has found a perspective and a calm about her performing life that enables her to navigate. It doesn't mean she doesn't have apprehensions or doubts or stress, but the way she's navigated is, is so real and so honest. So I particularly loved that one, but there were so many. And then there were, there were episodes like the 80-year-old Robert White, who was a tenor, he had been a child radio star in America on NBC in the 1940s. And he basically told stories from his entire life. And so we presented it more as a biographical feature in a way. So we had archival recordings and photographs. And that one was particularly meaningful to me. Robert White had been introduced to me by Stephen Huff because I asked Stephen, you, I said, Stephen, you, you know a lot of people in the musical world. Who would you suggest as being a, an interesting and, and, and essential guest to have on the show? And he, he said, without hesitation, he says, without a doubt, it's, it's, it's Bobby White. So I contacted him, and, and Bobby and I have become close friends over the years, and he has introduced me to many other friends of his who have subsequently become uh, guests on the show, for example, uh, Lowell Lieberman and John Corigliano. It's just been just been wonderful, and and he has uh, continued to tell me stories, but also wisdom from his long life. Mm-hmm. What have you learned then from doing these interviews, either as a performer or as an interviewer? Um, sorry, not interviewer. Um, I suppose conversationalists, um, or as a human. Well, I I would say this. It's mainly just in observation that we are really all in the same boat in, in this life as we approach our, our goals and our dreams. We really all face the uncertainty of which pathway to take. And, and I've really learned that there is no one pathway to get to where we wish to be. I think that having perspectives on however your path unfolds can make it easier or more challenging. <laughs> Some of our, our listeners, uh, one of them recently 
characterized our show as life therapy. And, and I actually take that as, as a badge of honor because I really want to have people feel excited and, and good and inspired about their lives and to understand that when they have challenges, they are not alone. When they have doubts, they have plenty of people to turn to to address whatever has been learned along the way. Yeah. I really think that every artist struggles with nerves on stage and uh, that's something that can be worked with. Mm-hmm. And I think the young musician, if we're talking about performers, diversified opportunities and diversified ways to approach a performing life are also essential. And, mm-hmm. and our guests give plenty of just different examples. They're, they're not really prescribing what works. And I would also say about the show, okay, we've had a lot of really prominent, illustrious guests, but it's really not just a parade of famous names. That <laughs> yeah. wouldn't be that, it, it wouldn't be that interesting, and particularly just to say how they became famous. We've yeah. also featured young musicians who are at the start of their careers who wanted to reflect on the challenges that they face and, and how they regard the musical world today. So... I think that uh, a certain curiosity in each person will be his or her guide to finding a pathway. It certainly was mine because really just continued asking questions accidentally led to the concept of, of the show. And so I just keep on asking the questions, really. That's, that's what I've learned. Yeah. And finally, is there anything that you can tell us about any future episodes of living the classical life have you filmed some more episodes yes well at at this time uh which it's april now april of 2020 we have about a dozen episodes that we've already filmed and have yet to release so we're very very excited about those probably the most uh requested and asked about feature within these is uh, the one featuring pianist mark andre hamelin so I, I, hope that, I hope that that will see the light of day soon. The, the challenge right now with the world is that uh, no one knows where the COVID-19 crisis will go. We've, we've already had to cancel two filming shoots, and those included, or I should say maybe postpone. Uh, we had film scheduled with Midori, for example, and we, we've been looking forward to, yeah. to hearing her, her human interest story and her transition from being a celebrated child prodigy and her her difficult transition to becoming a mature self-aware adult and and musician so we look forward to that and well i'm really looking forward to exploring more subjects for our audiences i i hope to never repeat myself too much although the same questions and and concerns presented to each artist will always lend totally different worlds of answers. And I hope certainly that the balance of my life, which has been very busy outside of the piano, I hope that the balance will also allow me more time for performing because that's really one of my true passions. So where can people access living the classical life? Well, there are two main ways. There is our website, livingtheclassicallife.com, which presents all of our features 
in Vimeo format, which mm -hmm. is a, a little bit uh, more of a, I've heard it described as a more elegant interface. You can also search for our episodes on Google and you can find them all on YouTube through the Living the Classical Life channel. And you can also find us on Facebook and Instagram. Fabulous. Well, I'm sure many listeners will look forward to um, watching your episodes over these next few months or so. So there you have it. That was my discussion with Jolt Bognar. Wasn't that really fascinating? Well, I am so excited to confirm that next week I am going to be talking to the acclaimed American baritone Thomas Hampson. Yep, that's right. You heard it here. I can't believe that this is happening. Um, this has been in the pipeline for such a long time and we're finally making this happen. Um, so I will definitely be releasing that interview next week. Um, so do make sure that you listen for that very special interview. But for now, um, stay safe, keep washing those hands and I hope that you'll be able to join me next week. Bye for now.